0: Annihilation. 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 Annihilation! Annihilation. One minute at a time. It will be years before I understand failure. The sun's last rage in the winter trees. My yard is a failure of field. It is small and poorly tended. Years before this hard kernel of worry rises to a truer height, I can learn to make shade with my palms. But I cannot learn to unmoor my want. I want wild roots to prosper, an invention of blooms, each unknown to every wise gardener. If I could be a color, if I could be a question of tender regard, I know crabgrass and thistle. I know one algorithm. It has nothing to do with repetition or rhythm. It has the route from number to number, less to more, more to less. A map drawn by proof, not faith. Unlike twilight, I do not conclude with darkness. I conclude. Jennifer Chang, The Winter's Wife. A note before we look at minute forty one. You may have experienced some interruption. Where lies the strangling fruit that came from the hand of the sinner? In recent episodes, words that many of you may not recognize.
1: I shall bring forth the seeds of the dead to share with the worms. Had you read the novel Annihilation, you may recognize the crawler's words
0: from the walls of the tower shared in segments by the biologist in her journal narrative. Let us finish with the tower. Quote, my voice must have seemed calmer than my actual thoughts because there was no hesitation in their response, no hint in their tone of having seen the spores erupt into my face. I had been so close. The spores had been so tiny, so insignificant, I shall bring forth the seeds of the dead. Words made of fungi, the surveyor said, stupidly echoing me. There is no recorded human language that uses this method of writing, the anthropologist said. Is there any animal that communicates in this way? I had to laugh. No, there is no animal that communicates in this way. Or if there were, I can recall its name and never did later, either. Are you joking? This is a joke, right? the surveyor said. She looked poised to come down and prove me wrong, but didn't move from her position. Fruiting bodies, I replied, almost as if in a trance, forming words. A calm had settled over me. A competing sensation as if I couldn't breathe or didn't want to was clearly psychological, not physiological. I had noticed no physical changes, and on some level it didn't matter. I knew it was unlikely we had an antidote to something so unknown waiting back at the camp. More than anything, the information I was trying to process immobilized me. The words were composed of symbiotic fruiting bodies from a species unknown to me. Second, the dusting of spores on the words meant that the farther down into the tower we explored, the more the air would be full of potential contaminants. Was there any reason to relay this information to the others when it would only alarm them? No, I decided. Perhaps selfishly. It was more important to make sure they were not directly exposed until we could come back with the proper equipment. Any other evaluation depended on environmental and biological factors about which I was increasingly convinced I had inadequate data. I came back up the stairs to the landing, The surveyor and the anthropologist looked expectant, as if I could tell them more. The anthropologist in particular was on edge. Her gaze couldn't alight on any one thing, but kept moving and moving. Perhaps I could have fabricated information that would have stopped that incessant search. But what could I tell them about the words on the wall, except that they were either impossible, or insane, or both? I would have preferred the words be written in an unknown language. This would have presented less of a mystery for us to solve, in a way. We should go back up, I said. It was not that I recommended this as the best course of action, but because I wanted to limit their exposure to the spores until I could see what long-term effects they might have on me. I also knew if I stayed there much longer, I might experience a compulsion to go back down the stairs, to continue reading the words, and they would have to physically restrain me, and I did not know what I would do then. There was no argument from the other two, but as we climbed back up, I had a moment of vertigo despite being in such an enclosed space, a kind of panic for a moment, in which the walls suddenly had a fleshy aspect to them. As if we traveled inside of the gullet of a beast. End quote. And before we leave the novel behind for a while, the biologists take on the crawler itself. Quote, Telescoping out from this context, I had several questions and few answers. What role did the crawler serve? I had decided it was important to assign a name to the maker of words. What was the purpose of the physical recitation of the words? Did the actual words matter or would any words do? Where did the words come from? What was the interplay between the words and the tower creature? Put another way, were the words a form of symbiotic or parasitic communication between the crawler and the tower? Either the crawler was an emissary of the tower, or the crawler had originally existed independent from it and come into its orbit later. Which brought me back to the words. Where lies the strangling fruit that came from the hand of the sinner? Wasps and birds and other nest builders often used some core, irreplaceable substance or material to create their structures, but would also incorporate whatever they could find in their immediate environment. This might explain the seemingly random nature of the words. It was just building material, and perhaps this explained why our superiors had forbidden high-tech being brought into Area X because they knew it could be used in unknown and powerful ways by whatever occupied this place. Several new ideas detonated inside me as I watched a marsh hawk dive into the reeds and come up with a rabbit struggling in its talons. First, that the words, the line of them, their physicality, were absolutely essential to the well-being of either the tower or the crawler or both. I had seen the faint skeletons of so many past lines of writing that one might assume some biological imperative for the crawler's work. This process might feed into the reproductive cycle of the tower or the crawler. Perhaps the crawler depended on it, and it had some subsidiary benefit to the tower. Or vice versa. Perhaps words didn't matter because it was a process of fertilization, only completed when the entire left-hand wall of the tower had a line of words running along its length. Despite my attempt to sustain the aria in my head, I experienced a jarring return to reality as I worked through these possibilities. Suddenly, I was just a person trudging across a natural landscape of a type I had seen before. There were too many variables, not enough data, and I was making some base assumptions that might not be true. For one thing, in all of this, I assumed that neither Crawler nor Tower was intelligent, in the sense of possessing free will. My procreation theory would still apply in such a widening context, but there were other possibilities. The role of ritual, for example. In certain cultures and societies how i longed for access to the anthropologist's mind now even though in studying social insects i had gained some insight into the same areas of scientific endeavor and if not ritual i was back to the purposes of communication this time in a conscious sense not a biological one what could the words on the wall communicate to the tower i had to assume or thought i did that the crawler didn't just live in the tower it went far afield to gather the words and it had to assimilate them even if it didn't understand them, before it came back to the tower. The crawler had to, in a sense, memorize them, which was a form of absorption. The strings of sentences on the tower's walls could be evidence brought back by the crawler to be analyzed by the tower. But there is a limit to thinking about even a small piece of something monumental. You still see the shadow of the hole rearing up behind you and you become lost in your thoughts in part from the panic of realizing the size of that imagined leviathan. I had to leave it there, compartmentalized, until I could write it all down and seeing it on the page begin to divine the true meaning, end quote. I took the words from the walls of the tower and used a bit of a cut-up technique, used by Dadaists in the 1920s and popularized by William Burroughs in the 50s and 60s, to fashion multiple versions of the text. In the first novel, the text comes in eight segments.
1: Where lies the strangling fruit that came from the hand of the sinner? I shall bring forth the seeds of the dead to share with the worms that... That's one. Reportedly, there are more words
0: in the other novels of the trilogy, but I have not read those as Alex Garland wrote this film after just reading the first. I may get to them before the end, but for now, I am avoiding them.
1: To share with the worms that gather in the darkness and surround the world with the power of their lives, while from the dim-lit halls of other places forms that never could be, writhe for the impatience of the few who have never seen or been seen. That's two. In the black water with the sun shining at midnight, those fruits shall come ripe in the darkness of that which is golden, shall split open to reveal the revelation of the fatal softness in the earth. 3.
0: 10th April 2017 Reddit user Hoboman2000 makes a lengthy argument as to how the crawler's words describe the history of Area X, and without the context of the other books or even knowing why Hoboman2000 refers to the crawler by the name Saul, I find it difficult to fully interpret the words, or how much they may or may not describe specific incidents past, present, or future.
1: The shadows of the abyss are like the petals of a monstrous flower that shall blossom within the skull and expand the mind beyond what any man can bear.
0: But that may be the point, in a way. This is communication from an alien intelligence, or maybe not even an intelligence at all. Had the words survived into the film, the visual of those letters made of fungi would be awesome to see.
1: But whether it decays under the earth or above on green fields, or out to sea or in the very air, all shall come to revelation and to revel, in the knowledge of the strangling fruit And the hand of the sinner shall rejoice. For there is no sin in shadow or in light that the seeds of the dead cannot forgive.
0: But also, the inability of Lena or any of the other women to understand what they are reading would tie into the refraction of the shimmer, i.e. a sentence fashioned by the shimmer would not inherently make any sense to someone whose brain had not yet been compromised by time within its boundaries.
1: There shall be in the planting in the shadows a grace and a mercy that shall bloom dark flowers, and their teeth shall devour and sustain and herald the passing of an age. Additionally, I imagine,
0: working backward from the film, that the crawler's attempt to form coherent sentences and a complete understandable message may be like the bear later in the film trying to communicate through Shepherd's voice. I will come back to that when it happens, but the short version is this. The bear took Shepherd's screams for help and uses them as its own. When its presence is misunderstood and taken as threatening, what does it take from Thorensen? Her throat. Her voice. It needs more words to make more sense. But let us save my more bizarre
1: interpretations for when they arise. That which dies shall still know life in death, for all that decays is not forgotten, and reanimated shall walk the world in a bliss of not knowing.
0: Final note on the words. I neglected to include the eighth segment of the words in my crawler notes, so the following lines were not in any of my previous interruptions.
1: There should be a fire that knows your name, and in the presence of the strangling fruit, its dark flame shall acquire every part of you.
0: The five women are in two boats, heading roughly south. We have been with Lena and Shepard in one boat. Lena still wears something clearly a military uniform. Green khaki button-up shirt open over a darker green t-shirt. Her locket hangs between her breasts over the t-shirt. Shepard's outfit feels much different now. She is down to a t-shirt but appears more dark gray than green. She also has a scarf around her neck of the same shade. On her close-ups, this could be a casual boating trip. We are currently angled on the other boat, Thornton, Raddock, and Ventress, moving past two trees with cancerous flowery growths. Shepard has just referred to the women as damaged goods.
1: We're all damaged goods here.
0: The film's first exploration into one of its primary themes, self-destruction. Specifically, she was cut off mid-word, saying Anya Thornton, is sober, therefore an addict. Note In the script, Shepard uses last names as if she also has a military background, and Radic won't wear short sleeves because she doesn't want you to see the pale scars on her forearms. In the film, she uses first names. Shepard is a researcher, not a soldier.
1: Josie, Josie wears, wears long, long sleeves because she, she doesn't want, to want to you to see the scars on her, on her forearms. Arms.
0: Second five cut to Angle on Front of Boat, Lena and Shepard. A couple lines not in the script. Lena, she She tried tried to to kill kill herself. herself. Shepard, no, I I think think the opposite. opposite. Trying trying to to feel alive. alive. Second 12, close on Lena, taking it in. Lena, Fetress? Second 14, close on Shepard. Her scripted line is very different than what is in the film. From the script, she's like an office building in a financial district. All steel and glass and height, but what for? From the film, yeah, Yeah. as far as 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 anyone anyone knows. knows. No No friends, no family, no no partner, no 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 children.
1: children. No, no concession, concession
0: in her at, at all. all. Second 26, angle from inside front of boat on Lena and Shepard. Beat. Lena. You? Second 29, close on Shepard. Shepard pauses. Shepard. I, I so lost, lost someone. someone. She closes her eyes. Opens them. Not, Not a husband, husband though. No, um, a daughter. A daughter. Leukemia. Leukemia. Second 39, close on Lena. Lena. God, I'm, I'm sorry. sorry. Second 42, close on Shepard. And the a simple play of emotion here. Painful but bittersweet, ending in a soft sort of smile, is wonderful. One of many times, the Tuva Novotny, the least well-known of these five actresses, at least in this country, really shines. Shepard. In a a way, way it's two bereavements. My My beautiful beautiful girl. girl. And the person person I once was. In the film, Thorinson's voice immediately cuts in from off-screen. Thorinson, Hey, hey! In the script... We get an exchange that does not survive into the film. Silence. Lena. Thornsson called this a suicide mission. Shepard. I doubt it's as shrink-wrapped as that. Lena. But on some level. Shepard. You tell me, Karens. When you volunteered, did you have high expectations of making it back? Lena. I wasn't thinking in those terms. Lena looks at Shepard evenly. Lena. Continued. But now you mention it, yes. I'm going to be making it back. Shepard smiles. Shepard. Babe. I'm sticking with you they lapse back into silence. Behind them, Shepard's oar strokes leave a gentle disturbance on the water. Instead, second 54 cut to exterior swamp day. Thornsson in the lead boat. Angled from behind, Radic is partly visible, but Ventress is blocked from view. Thornsson is stripped down to her khaki pants and a white tank top. Casual. Practical. In front of her, Radic still wears her jacket, but the hood of the hoodie she wears beneath it hangs over the back, so it does not appear immediately as the military garb it all is. Within the shimmer, and especially in this short boat trip, their packs off their backs, the gator attack behind them, the women are more themselves than when they entered. On this angle, we can see the waterway opening up ahead, but the edit comes just as a tree blocks what Thornsson has seen, so it is not obvious right away what is coming. Thornsson pauses her paddling and turns back to speak over her right shoulder. Thornsson, we got, you got something here. She goes back to paddling, and Ventress is visible through the gap between Thornson and Raddick. Ventress wears her jacket still, as well as some sort of scarf around her neck. She sits sideways, looking backward, but turns now to look forward. In the distance, above the tree line, a guard tower comes into view. Second 57, we angle past the lead boat on the second boat. Thorntzen's head is out of frame as she paddles past. Angle again on the lead boat from behind, and time runs out for this minute.
1: We spoke.
0: What was it we said? Wordlessly watching, he waits by the window and wonders at the empty place inside. is all we are
1: annihilation